Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. 
Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over New Zealand. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And this is the special sub-series Wings Over Australia, and I'm your co-host, James Kitely. We're here at Essendon Airport with... Phil Vabre. And Morris Austin. Hi, guys. So, Phil, tell us about the uh, museum here. Well, we're a unique kind of aviation museum in that we don't have any aeroplanes. Right. Uh, Our story is about the hidden part of aviation. So... Aviation's a little bit like an iceberg. Everybody sees the aeroplanes and loves the aeroplanes. But there's a lot of uh, infrastructure behind the scenes that makes air transport in particular possible. Right. And that's what our museum's about. It's about the airways system. So we're talking air radio, flight service, air traffic control, navigation aids, the aviation rescue and firefighting service, and airports as well. And that's uh, the focus of what we've got here on display. Fantastic. And it's also perhaps important to point out that this museum shows the, really the entire history uh, in Australia of these services right back in, into the 1930s, some of the little precursors even before that. Um, and you can see the origins and how things have changed. Um, so um, I'm in the museum uh, with us all here having a look around and I can see um, basically a, a large industrial sort of building with um, a huge number of big grey, mostly what I can see now, big grey boxes with uh, about a, two metres, two and a half metres tall um, with all sorts of old-fashioned dials and switches. I mean, it's a, it's a, a shed paradise, really, in that way. Um, and a lot of the machinery works, too. Um, of all kinds of things, some which will be very familiar to people. I think Morris is about to demonstrate uh, one that most people will know. Now, young people today may not be aware that this is a primitive precursor to a laptop computer known as a typewriter, but the older uh, listeners, I'm sure, are very familiar with that sequence of noises. And that's sitting on a desk which is part of a, uh, uh, an air radio uh, system which was set up in the 1930s. Phil, please tell us a bit more. Thanks, James. Well, the uh, air radio is, stands for aeronautical radio, and it's a contraction of those two words. Yep. And... Uh, after a number of accidents in the early or in the 1920s and early 1930s, the Australian government realised that uh, they needed a, well, aircraft needed to be able to communicate with the ground while they were in flight to get updated weather information and so on and so forth. And originally the aircraft communicated with um, shipping radio stations, but ships and aircraft are not really compatible. So in the late 1930s, the government decided to contract Amalgamated Wireless Australasia, AWA, very famous name to set up and run uh, 12 air radio stations, basically up the east coast of Australia from Tasmania to New Guinea, which was then an Australian territory, and also from Brisbane across to Darwin, um, supporting the international service by Qantas that started in 1934. 
The, uh, what we've got on display here is a recreation of the air radio room in one of those air radio stations. They were all built to a standard pattern. Uh, on the left of the operator, in one of the grey cabinets James is talking about, we've got some HF radio receivers, high frequency radio receivers. Uh, most of the communication was done by Morse code in those days. Yep. And uh, anyone who's used HF radio will know it's not uh, a really a great bag of fun because you have a lot of static and interference on HF. Uh, but it was all they had in those days and it had the advantage of being able to communicate over long distances. And the operators had uh, one radio that they used for air-to-ground communication with the aircraft yep. and another one for communication between ground stations because surface communications were quite rare and expensive in those days. There weren't phone lines or telegraph lines uh, in a lot of places. So the air radio system had its own communications network by HF radio. We've also got, uh, in one of those cabinets, is a thing called a Strouger Relay, which is an electromechanical remote control device, in yep. fact. Um, it looks pretty Heath Robinson today. It's got lots of gears and levers and wheels and things, but in those days it was a very high-tech piece of apparatus, and using that, the operator could change the frequency of the HF transmitters, which were kept in about a mile away in another building to yep. prevent interference. And also they could do things like turn on and off the aerodrome lights and so on. Right. The other piece of equipment we've got on the desk in front of the operator is our first radio navigation aid, which is a Bellini Tossi medium frequency direction finder. And the way that worked was the air radio operator would tell the pilot to hold down his Morse key for a certain period of time. Um, he could then tune, electronically tune an antenna system on the ground to get a bearing on the aircraft which you would then send up to the pilot by Morse code. The pilot could plot that bearing on a chart, get a line of position. If you got two bearings from different stations, you could get a position fix. Yep. And uh, that was really the first aid that pilots had for flying or navigating while they are flying in cloud. The advantage of that system is that all the heavy electronics were on the ground rather than in the aeroplane. Right, right. Now, you said that there were 12 stations set up around the Australian coast. Yep. Between the stations, were there also repeater stations so that the signal could be passed on? No, or did the so signals get that, that go the distance? Sorry, the, the advantage of HF is uh, it can uh, enable communication over long distance. So yeah. the stations were a couple of hundred miles apart. Yeah. Um, so they were able to communicate over those sorts of distances using HF. So that's uh, that must have been, in terms of communication in those days, in any sense, it must have been very much a big leap. Uh, because, you know, even the post offices and the likes of that wouldn't have been able to co communicate so easily. Uh, well, the post offices, post office, well, PMG's department, post, Postmaster General's department, as it was then, they did actually have um, a telegraph network that right. spanned most of Australia. Um, that's through wires, though, isn't it? Through wires, yeah. that's right. But, well, in certain mm. places, particularly in the outback, even the post office communication network was by HF radio. Oh, right. So they had... Uh, their HF radio operators in the post office to send telegrams and so on okay. around the country, but um, wasn't really suitable for the air radio operation because they were obviously tied up sending telegrams, whereas we needed a dedicated network for aircraft communications, hence right. air radio. So at the start of the Second World War, DCA was the only, apart from perhaps the Air Force, but even then they didn't have much of a system, DCA was really the only government authority or any even commercial authority that had a nationwide communication network operating. Right. 
Just to put a bit of context into that, um, if you think, uh, the listeners sort of think for a moment about a, a mental map of Australia, even today the vast majority of the population live in an arc between really Brisbane up in the north east down through um, Sydney and Melbourne to Adelaide and the rest of the country, while there's a lot of people scattered around, there's, there's not the same sort of population. Back uh, in the 1930s that was even more the case and one of the things I think is interesting, I'm just going to throw over to Phil in a moment, is that um, we're talking about difficulty in communication in Australia, country with uh, large areas of not very much. Um, even today I understand that if you're flying, in an, you're flying an airliner from say Perth back to Sydney or Melbourne, um, there's quite a big chunk of the country where you're effectively out of um, uh, basic communications. We've, we've got them on radar and we know what's going on but they don't normally um, broadcast or receive because there's no um, system set up for that. Am I wrong? A little bit James. It, um, at high level, so the where the commercial jets are flying, we've now got surveillance across the entire continental Australia. And what, what do you mean by surveillance exactly? Uh, well, we use a system called radar on the east coast yep. and certain other places, and then uh, across the rest of Australia, we use a different system called ADSB, which right. stands for Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. And uh, I won't bore you with the details of how that works, but it gives us the equivalent uh, of radar coverage across all of uh, continental Australia. But because it's a line of sight system, as radar is, the lower you are, the more holes appear in the coverage. So there are, at lower levels, there's a lot of Australia still that's not covered by surveillance, or in fact, VHF uh, radio. So we still use HF radio today for communication with aircraft that are outside of sort of the main areas, if you like. I think that's a fascinating point because I think today most people with, you know, we have our phones in our pockets with GPS and uh, generally we expect, unless you're in certain parts of the world, I'm thinking here, my Canadian friends and in America where you might be remote, certainly Australia, uh, you're pretty much expecting to have some kind of comms going on and, and not be invisible unless you want to be invisible. Uh, whereas even, you know, 2015 in Australia, um, there are bits where you can, yeah, disappear. I suppose you could if you wanted to. <laughs> Although, generally, we'll, we'll know we'll roughly try and keep track of most of the aircraft. Yeah. We were talking about the, the distance between the stations, the airports. Um, the big thing in the 1920s and 30s, aviation brought those cities closer together, didn't it? Because back then the roads weren't that great. Mm -hmm. um, you had rail, but. Or coastal ship. Yeah, or coastal ship in some places. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the speed at which people could get from A to B. That was a huge um, change around the world, but particularly in a big country like Australia, I guess. Yes, that's certainly true. And um, even in, well, after the war, even uh, a lot of places in Australia were still very, very remote. And if it wasn't for air transport, would be um, virtually cut off at times of the year uh, from the outside world. In fact, um, it's interesting, uh, you talked about railways. Um, one of the questions that's people don't often think about is how come Qantas, which is Australia's major airline today, why did they start off in outback Queensland? And the answer is that the original Qantas service linked the three railheads that ran in from the coast into central Queensland from um, Charleville, Longreach and Cloncurry. So you had three railway lines running in, but if you wanted to go north-south at the end of those railway lines, you had to go by car or horse or something like that and you couldn't even drive for times of the year because of the, the countryside so having an air service that linked the railheads yeah. 
meant that it saved several days on the journey from one place to another. Right. Um, and similarly, throughout a lot of Australia, air transport was what brought a lot of those communities within sort of the national ambit, if you like. Right. Very much so, even today, that uh, I think it's fair to say Australians think of travelling around their country for a, a business meeting in Canberra or, or um, in Brisbane from Melbourne. The logical way is to go by air, simply because uh, the modern airline system is uh, very fast and convenient, much as we complain, as everybody does, about transport. But realistically, it's a phenomenal uh, system. And that really comes back to what we're looking at here today, which is taking the aircraft that we were developing around the world in the 30s, 20s, 30s and 40s in World War into World War II and then providing systems for them to work with it. Because what we'd found in the 30s, putting what you just said in a different way, Phil, um, about uh, the aeronautical safety was that we knew the aircraft could work, but we needed to know where they were. Um, they needed to be able to find out what was going on, particularly with weather. And as, as more aerial traffic started to occur, there was obviously the, the development of the risk of, air, of, of aircraft you know, colliding or, or being um, uh, disrupted as they are flying around. You know, if, you, if you're the only airliner flying from A to B, you don't have to worry about anybody else. But when you start having people coming in from different directions to one city airport, it gets a bit more complicated, yeah. which I believe is Phil's day job. We haven't mentioned this, but uh, Phil is an air traffic controller by uh, by profession well it, <laughs> thank you James that's true um, although I'm here today in my capacity as a vice president of the Civil Aviation Historical Society yep. uh, which operates the Airways Museum but yeah I do have a, a daytime interest in this as well so you can actually bring up both the historical aspect and, and the current scene together which I think is always a, a good uh, a good marriage to, to have absolutely absolutely now I think Morris wants to show us uh, what do you want to show us Morris we have a demonstration of ACARS. What we're looking at here is just a uh, computer screen connected to a scanning radio connected to the airband. In fact, it's 131.55 to be precise. And on that frequency in our area on the VHF, we are listening to a noise. If we can put the microphone. As that noise occurs, within that signal is a whole lot of data which is being uh, translated by software into a lot of text which is coming up on the screen in front of our eyes. Right. And uh, what it does, um, when an aircraft comes into the line of sight airspace, the flight number, the aircraft registration and the aircraft type and the time it arrived is coming up on the screen along with a whole lot of other information which uh, to avoid a lot of on-air microphone time, a lot of commands and instructions can be um, done via a keyboard. Yep. And the aircraft can send and also receive ACARS, which stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System. Now, the current world's greatest aviation mystery is the, uh, the missing MH370. Yeah. One of the first things that happened on that aircraft that we do know was that it switched off its ACAR stream. Right. So the ACAR stream tells you a lot about the aircraft. Um, power settings, the exhaust gas temperatures, the flap settings, number of passengers on board, a lot of information. Right. Plus company code, uh, the computer self-checks. Um, from the arcane, like please can we have a wheelchair at the ramp, right, yep, right yep. through to the uh, the number of G's on landing, and it appears that 1.5 is a good landing. Okay. 
So, uh, quite a, a diverse range of messages. Uh, weather reports, uh, a captain may ask for what the weather is in Sydney. Yep. And seconds later, up comes in text form the, the forecast for Sydney and with the active runway, all that sort of data. And they're getting that fired up to them to their nice uh, readout on the glass copper. That's right. Yep. Now, sometimes, like um, the ground may request, may give a um, a flight plan at the end it'll say request readback right. so it gets sent in this code form but the pilot has to read it back to right. make sure that he's, he's heard it right um, some very weird things have come up here i've been standing here once when it came up engine failure number four. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to go missing switch off the a cars <laughs> <laughs> who has access to this is it just the tower it's free to air anyone the with a scanner and the, the decoding software is free there's a variety of versions of them we use one called kga cars which we find is the most graphic and the most interesting okay um, okay and basically anyone can do it who's got a pc and the software is very simple and very small so it's the spotter's paradise really uh, well you can you know how people collect stamps and model railway engines? Yep. I can imagine there are ACARS <laughs> people out there too. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things this demonstrates is that in the museum here we have everything right from the very start of the airway system to the most modern technology. Absolutely, and it's a bit of a change, isn't it? That, it certainly that, is. That huge big grey box down to a little... Uh, little screen yeah that's with, right with a tiny box under it i mean it's the miniaturization of all of this particularly radio equipment has been incredible and yeah. computer power of course and talking of that one of the things i find uh, fascinating about this museum is one of the big gray boxes has a um, uh, a listing of the number of um, bytes on the side i think doesn't yes, it can it we does. talk have a quick look at that one We're just walking past a number of big grey boxes to get to this one. Well, we have from the early days of computing, we, we have a RAM chip here out of a, an IBM computer, 1955. It's about uh, oh, 300 millimetres long and a similar height, covered in wires and all sorts of funny things. It's actually a, a memory chip of 2.8K. Wow. I didn't even know you could get that low. <laughs> it's getting difficult to uh, describe what a K is to younger people. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's beyond the smallest thing you can think of in computing terms. And uh, in front of us here, have we said big grey box yet? Anyway, there's another big grey box here. And uh, oh, the next, oh, next step up from that 2.8K memory chip is the hard drive. And here we have a hard drive which is in a cabinet about as big as the deep freezer. In it is a very large spinning disc, which is about uh, 500 millimetres in diameter. You'd think that would hold a lot of data. It's actually two megabytes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, actually, I've heard of hard drives like this, but I've never seen one, and it's actually fascinating. It's got some wonderful big switches on the top that uh, people of a certain generation will remember as young people, which is a big green button with power on, a big black button power off, and a, and a white button saying not ready, and a key. <laughs> so that's definitely how you want to be doing computing. Yeah. <laughs> Again, um, an early Argus 500 computer, which was relatively modern by the standards of the IBM memory module. Um, two of those controlled the entire waterboard of the United Kingdom. Wow. And they also used the Argus 500 for controlling Bloodhound missiles. Wow. I think the um, Department of Civil Aviation had a less 
uh, a more benign use for it. <laughs> it has memory modules that were upgraded periodically, the smallest one being a, a massive, huge uh, pull-out drawer covered in chips, electronic chips, yep. total of 16K. You know, we now carry in our pockets sort of... Um, Right, so gigabytes. 128 gigabytes. Work that out in K's, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. So we're, we're obviously not going to go through the whole museum and look at everything in detail because there's a huge amount here. I think it's fair to say most of you, the most examples of key stages you've got working examples of here. Is that right, Phil? Uh, some things we have, yeah. Um, there's some things we, we're working on getting working, if I can say that. Um, but there's some things we can't really operate for example, we've got a, a bunch of big HF radio transmitters here. Um, You'd be unpopular to, if you turned those on, would you? You'd be very unpopular if you started transmitting with those because they are very powerful uh, bits of equipment in their day. Yep. Um, and some of them were, some of the ones we've got on display here, they had very long lives as well. Um, for example, there's a thing here called a J2876, which is about the size of, I don't know, four fridges put together. Wow. And uh, that was the HF, the original HF radio transmitter that went with that air radio diorama that we were talking about earlier. Yep. And they were used up until the 1980s, so they had a very long life. Okay. Um, in the early days, they were used for hand Morse code, but later on converted to use uh, machine code. And uh, they were used for point-to-point -point communication all around the world with... Uh, uh, within Australia and with uh, external countries as well because everywhere an aeroplane flies there are messages that go around with it to tell firstly the flight plan then the departure message the position reports and so on and all of those are part of the unseen part of the airway system and that's of course what our museum's about. Right. In, in restoring these uh, bits and pieces to get them going again is it quite hard to find the parts and, and even to find the drawings or find how they work? Um, well, we have actually got quite a large technical library here and we've got most of the technical uh, information that we need, but yep. it certainly is hard to find parts. So uh, some of these old radios used enormous valves and they're just unprocurable now, yep. even if you would, did want to turn one on again. Um, one of our radar consoles, for example, we had operating until just a little while ago, but it's blown something inside. and. Um, We've tracked down where the fault is, but uh, can't find a spare for it. So, right, right. unfortunately, it's offline at the moment. So, they're, they're the kinds of problems, I suppose, just like aircraft restorers that are looking for parts all the time. Uh, yeah. We've got the same sort of problem. In fact, probably more acute because a lot of our stuff was never produced in as large numbers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If I can chip in there, a couple of things that sort of might provide a bit of context is uh, many years ago now I was talking to one of the curators at the Science Museum in London and uh, we were chatting about this kind of technological challenge and he was saying he felt that, uh, and, and it was a common feeling with a lot of uh, curators of, of science and technology, that we passed through really a mini dark age, that we now have data on recorded mediums from really the 1950s through to the 1980s, where we either don't have the machinery to read that data, reel-to-reel -reel tapes are actually quite robust compared to some of the other things. And if you think, I had a good example the other day, is um, I recorded, I, I 
put some photographs onto a, a CD-ROM for a friend and passed over to him. So I, I think I've got a computer with a CD-ROM reader here. And it was only a couple of years ago when a friend gave me a floppy disk. And I don't have any way of reading a floppy disk. So if you listeners sort of think for a moment, you'll probably realise that you didn't notice things becoming obsolete. But now a lot of the technologies we've used have become obsolete and sciences are finding it really hard. If, if the Science Museum in London, which along with the Smithsonian are one of the two I would say probably two uh, collections of this kind maintaining these, this kind of historical record uh, are finding it hard. It, it's really hard to uh, to uh, to do it globally. And I think it's great what the, uh, the collection do here. Yeah. The other thing I think is interesting, tying in with what Phil's talked about, is to turn some of this on its head. And the early days of aviation, when you're sort of flying around your, your local airfield, you, you generally weren't out of sight of the place. And if you did manage to get out of sight, you were really pleased because it was a long flight and you could claim a record. Um, but uh, after World War One, um, flying navig aerial navigation became much more critical, being able to find your way around. Very short, simplified version of that is that they took, picked up uh, marine navigation, um, so they were using sextants, exactly the same sort of uh, sextants that, sh that ships use, but unfortunately they would be travelling at uh, you know above 100 miles an hour quite often, unlike a ship, and, and so your information would be going out of date very quickly. Um, the radio came in, as we just talked about, and initially it was mostly Morse, I think, um, and, uh, and Morse was a critical thing, and as Phil very rightly pointed out, being able to keep the heavy technology on the ground and the, and the simple technology in the air um, worked very well. But knowing where an aircraft was, where it was going for the pilot or the, the air crew, because often they would have a navigator, it was a specialised role really from the, the uh, 1920s forward, and a, and a different skill set. You could qualify as, a, as an aerial navigator, and some pilots did. Many didn't, and I think many of them there, probably their last regret was wishing that they had when they were lost, yeah. um, and so on. So there's a real history in terms of what was in the aircraft, and that's moderately well documented. We hear a bit about aerial navigation, but very rarely do you hear what Phil was just describing about the ground stations that went with them. Would you have something to add to that, Phil? Uh, no, but I think you're, uh, you're quite right there, James. Um, <clears throat> this really is the unknown part of, of the aviation system, and people do know about navigators, and lots of navigators have written books and so on, yep. but very few people know much about the ground side of the, the system. And as I mentioned earlier, we had our direction finders, our first radio navigation aid, and then there were more navigation aids that came along uh, later on, which we'll see in a bit. Um, and they are absolutely essential to making air transport particularly safe and reliable, and yet very people, very few people, other than people who are involved in the industry, know much about it. Right. Uh, on a on a world scale, are there many other museums around that are doing what you're doing with uh, preserving this history? Um, there are various museums that have bits and pieces uh, of stuff. Um, there's a group in. Western Australia at the Bull Creek Aviation Museum that have a little corner in there where they have some airways equipment going and they do a pretty good job of, of uh, getting their stuff running and displaying it to the public but as far as we're aware there's, there are no other museums exactly like this one anywhere in the world. I know that we have an airways museum in New Zealand at uh, Palmerston North, Milson. Um, but I believe I haven't actually had the pleasure to uh, visit the place yet. But I believe it's quite a small museum and more just information than rather than technical um, equipment. 
But one of these days I will get there and have a look, and, right. and, and then I'll have something to compare to. But and report back. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. another point that we've touched on, but perhaps worth reiterating, is that uh, if you can make this stuff go, very much like aircraft restoration, it's very important to have stuff statically preserved. But a lot of the information is lost by doing that. You, you don't know how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and what we're seeing today here is, is how some of this stuff works. And something I'm particularly keen to see today is a couple of... Um, uh, navigation aids that even I can understand. I've, I've actually written about these and uh, had some help from expert navigators, and I think Phil. Um, and one of them is, is, is uh, uh, HF direction finding and then the uh, the Lorenz beam. So, uh, yeah. Phil, can I hand, hand over to you and ask well, a bit on that? Why don't we go and have a look at our working models and uh, we'll show you how to talk. We'll go through you how the work. HF window. <laughs> <laughs> entered another area and um, we're heading more into the wartime context because I can see some large black boxes as well as the grey ones. Um, so it, it does seem to be, we're making a little joke of it I think, but it's fair to say that uh, um, the, the sort of your large ground uh, black box which was, which was where a lot of this equipment was put and there was a fair amount of power required for these sort of things, wasn't there Phil? There was and uh, all of these uh Air radio and navigation aid uh, stations generally had their own set of generators to uh, power it all. And backup generators. And no backup doubt. generators, that's right, and so on. Um, <clears throat> one of the, uh, the challenges that we have in this museum is uh, James has been talking about the, the big grey and black boxes, and uh, to the general public, well, I guess that's what they are. and. It's hard to make that interesting to people, so that's one of our challenges, try and uh, put it into context so that people understand what their function was and how they work, not yep. just uh, looking at a grey box. Right. Right. One of the things we've got here is a model of the second type of radio navigation system we had in Australia. It was called the Lorenz 33 Megacycle Radio Range, and it came about because in the mid-30s um, Australia had realised that we needed a system of radio navigation beacons as well as a direction finding system. And we sent a team over to the United States to look at systems there and then over to Europe to look at what was being done over there. Yep. And the team uh, found a system that was being developed by the Lorenz company in Germany. It was being developed as a blind landing system, but they realised that it could be adapted as an on-route navigation system okay. for Australia's purposes. And so that was the system we adopted, the Lorenz 33 megacycle radio range, or megahertz as we would call it today. And in the late 1930s, it was the first network of radio navigation beacons operating in what we would call today the VHF band anywhere in the world. So it was world-leading technology at the time and a well, a world-leading application of, of the German technology. Right. Morris is going to demonstrate how it worked, but um, just to explain, the beacon radiated two signal lobes. One had Morse, Morse code dots uh, coded on it, the other side had Morse code dashes. And where the two lobes overlap, which defined the centre line of the airway, the dots and dashes merged into a single tone. Right. So Morris can demonstrate that for us now. Well, I'm standing in front of a, a little display that shows a photograph of the Lorenz Tower, which is a very large, rickety-looking wooden antenna, very tall, with a, an odd uh, construction on the top, which generated, as Phil said, these two lobes where 
if the aircraft was flying towards it and there was one of these antennas at each of the major airports, like yeah. Essendon, and across to Adelaide you had Neil halfway had one of these antennas and Adelaide had their own. And when I switch on this box here, we're simulating uh, by holding a plastic model of a DC-3, a fairly large thing, yeah. uh, 400 millimetres wide, in the nose we are simulating via infrared the dots and the dashes and uh, I'll see if I can uh, generate what we're talking about. We'll right. switch it on. Now we're flying left of the track and we're getting dots. If I suddenly shift over to the right of the track, we're getting the longer dash. If we bring the aircraft back into the centre, which is the, uh, the actual air route, we get a constant, we get a constant tone. Right. So the pilot would be wearing headphones or the radio operator, and occasionally he would put them on and check that he wasn't getting dots or dashes proving that he, uh, if he was getting dots or dashes, he had to deviate so that he got the constant tone. Right, right. And uh, he'd, uh, the beam would run out of puff, sort of, uh, out of Essendon, and then pick it up at nil, and fly the other side of nil, then he'd pick up Adelaide. So right. it revolutionised the reliability of navigation, along with the other things, um, like following railway lines, rivers, roads, and uh, we'll get to radio stations in a minute. Right. So again, most modelers will probably actually recognise some of this, because it seems a bit arcane, but um, uh, if you build a model of World War II aircraft, you probably put a, a little bit of plastic and um, what looks like a towel rail on it, and that's the actually the Lorenz-type uh, uh, aerial. Um, we're looking at a photograph here. We've got one under the, uh, under the nose of a DC-3, DC-2 DC uh, there, and... Um, yeah, so that, that's something that uh, was, I remember putting a lot of those on a lot of models as a, as a young boy and never understanding what it was. And I've always found that a really neat little application. I don't know who invented the idea of the dashes and dots combining to a single uh, continuous tone, but uh, it was a very smart idea. And like lots of smart ideas, it was used quite extensively um, by both sides during World War II. Yes. And the, the Germans used them, as, as I think most people would know. And going away from that, one of the fascinating developments... Uh, for sad reasons in terms of uh, aerial navigation aids and, and, um, and keeping us informed of where our aeroplanes are, was the um, electronic countermeasures war of World War II. But maybe we'll take a step back and, and talk about um, footballs. Um, <clears throat> Before we do that, James, I'll just add that the, uh, the German development of the Lorenz system that you were talking about there was the Knickerbein yes. bombing system. Um, and Knickerbein meaning uh, bent leg, bent I leg, think. Yeah. That's right. Um, so the next uh, navigation aid we had after the uh, radio range didn't appear in Australia till uh, the war. Yep. The Americans uh, brought them out, I guess, and they were a, a system called Homers, or a type of beacon called a Homer. Uh, we know them better today as an NDB or a non-directional beacon, and they're still the most common type of radio navigation aid in Australia. Right. And they worked on the principle of direction finding but in this instance, the direction finder was in the aeroplane. And we've got a model here, which we can demonstrate. So just come around. Uh, what we've got is a loop antenna coupled to a transistor radio. And it's set up to be tuned into a local radio station here, which is 
774. So <coughs> at the moment the antenna is pointing at right angles to the station. Um, but I'll get Morris to turn the system on and we'll have a listen to what it does. Well, what we've got is uh, we're simulating what was on aircraft during the war and post-war. You'll probably remember seeing photographs um, of military aircraft and passenger aircraft that carried a black torpedo-shaped device, usually on the underside of the aircraft, and quite often two of them. And inside this Bakelite torpedo was a coil of wire connected to a flexible cable to a radio. Often called a football in American pilots because it's shaped rather like an American football. We can tell that Morris isn't an Australian rules football <laughs> fan because no, he would be right. calling it a football as well. But it's blunt at one end and pointed at the other. And it was connected to an ordinary AM radio which could uh, pick up ordinary radio stations as well as these Homer beacons that Phil described. Yep. Uh, slightly different frequency but still in a similar band. We've replicated it here. We have a turntable for the loop antenna. I'm going to turn it on. We have a Melway's street directory map laid out on the tabletop. We have our antenna centered on Essendon Airport, and we have the coil in the pointing in the direction of where we know the ABC station is. It's about right. 12 kilometers away. Right. I'm going to turn on the radio, and with a bit of luck, you'll hear 774, um, Buckley's chance of what we'll get. Now what I'm going to do, we've got a nice full strength signal here of the radio. I'm going to rotate on the turntable the whole antenna, the loop antenna. I'm going to rotate it um, so that the loop is quite opposite direction to the radio station. I'll turn up the radio loud. Which is in the middle of the major supply route between the IS strongholds of Raqqa in Syria as I've turned it, the radio station has practically disappeared. Right. In fact, if I rotate the loop quickly, it's very sharp. It's called the null. If I rotate the loop back to where the signal is the most strong, I can move it in quite a wide arc and nothing happens to the signal strength. When I move it back off axis to the radio station, the radio station disappears. Right being sharp, if you can do that to two radio stations and triangulate, that's where you were five minutes ago. Right, right, right. <laughs> and of course, the pilots would all have maps with them showing where the transmitting towers for the various stations were. And dotted all over the place now are what we call NDBs. They're a small radio station transmitting uh, what we call a carrier wave overlaid with a Morse identifier. So an NDB at Essendon would be transmitting EN for Essendon, etc. So the aircraft could null out the NDB or the radio station and get an idea of where he was. Right, right. So chip in again there. Um, uh, regular listeners to the program will be very familiar with Bill and Robin Reed's um, Avro Anson in New Zealand. Yep. On the top of that Anson is a, a little one of these um, uh, disc... Um, uh, antenna, um, so it's basically a, a vertical uh, disc. If you're making your model, you used loop. Thank you very much for it. Yes, corrected there. Um, uh, if you're making a model aeroplane, you were upgrading using a bit of bit of fuse wire or something, and that would be attached. What most people don't realise is that rotated. You could rotate it all the way around, 
and that would be attached to a, um, a controller a, a ring in the roof of the aircraft and there's photographs of Bill and Robbins there um, with the compass uh, points marked on it so you could actually see which particular direction you got your null or your full strength uh, signal. Um, so again it's one of those things that you built on your models or you've seen in photographs but you probably didn't understand what it was that you were looking at. And as I said today we still use NDBs except that the whole process is automated now and the equipment we use is an ADF or an automatic direction finder right. that does all of that uh, direction finding process uh, automatically obviously. Right. One of the uh, items we have on display in our air traffic control section is a radar system, or it was called the Bright Display System. It was a, our first proper long-range radar that we used in Australia for air traffic control purposes, and it also enabled us to introduce radar approach control as well. Right. It was introduced in the early 1960s, bought from uh, Thompson CSF, which is a French company, along with the radars themselves. And uh, in fact, Australia has been buying equipment from uh, Thompson CSF or TALUS as it's now known for uh, probably the last, well, since the 60s, so 55 years, so right, right. quite a long association with them. Yep. There's sort of two sorts of radar, there's primary radar and the secondary radar. The primary radar is what you're probably familiar with, the great big rotating dish that goes round and round quite slowly. They don't use so many of those anymore, they've got smaller ones because they don't need the reach with modern uh, satellite and various other forms of navigation. Um, now the bright display system originally only used primary radar and the primary radar as a lot of people will know is the old Battle of Britain type of radar yep. where you have a radar scanner that blurts out a pile of energy some of that's reflected off the aircraft back to the receiver and uh, we see on the display a, a blip appear. Yep. Right. But in the older days with primary radar the big dish that rotated round and round on the screen, which we're looking at one of the big screens here now, they left um, an elongated blob. Yep. Elongated because the dish was travelling so slowly and the aircraft had moved by the time it was scanned. Right, right. So we're looking at a, a photograph of what was on a typical screen and centred on Tullamarine Airport, Melbourne yep. Airport, and down on the right hand side lower there's a, a lot of little blobs which are aircraft at Grabbin Airport. Pipers and Cessnas and things. Right. But the blobs don't tell you anything except that there's something there. We hope it's an aircraft, it could be a UFO, yeah. mainly aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately the problem with that is that you also get reflections from things like flocks of birds or trains or trucks or uh, even rain yeah. can cause reflections and so sometimes you're not certain which is an aeroplane and which isn't. And of course if if you do find an aeroplane, or you do see an aeroplane, most of them are, yeah. um, then the system doesn't tell you which aeroplane that is. So in those days there were lots of arcane methods of identifying the aircraft, uh, which are still in the books but we don't really use anymore. Yeah. Um, and once you had it identified, one of the tricks was keeping track of who was who on your radar display. And to do that they used uh, things called shrimp boats. No little tags of perspex. Using a Chinagraph pencil you write the call sign of the aircraft on it and when you had identified the particular blip as being that aircraft you would use 
surface tension, you moisten the back of the Perspex shrimp boat. Yep. Using surface tension, you would stick it onto the screen next to the blip, yep. and that would tell you which aeroplane was which. And as the blip moved, you moved the... Well, that's the problem, of course. The aeroplanes <laughs> move around. Yeah. yeah, so you had to move the, the shrimp boats, but then occasionally they'd fall off, or somebody had hit the console and they'd all fall off, and you'd So a big panic while you re-identified everybody. But uh, it was pretty... I mean, it sounds terrible now, of course, but in those days it was a pretty sophisticated uh, system. Very effective, uh, as I said, for its day, and uh, enabled us to process a lot more traffic than the old uh, procedural control uh, using the Flight Progress Board. Now, of course, in Australia, we had very limited radar coverage, basically only up the east coast of Australia, yep. a bit at Perth and a bit at Darwin. Um, so the rest of Australia was all still controlled in the traditional procedural way with paper strips and flight progress boards. Yep. But on the east coast, we were able to really improve the processing of traffic. In the 1970s, we got our first SSR, secondary surveillance radar. And the way the SSR works is the radar sends out a signal. A transponder on the aircraft receives the uh, signal and it triggers a reply back to the ground station. Now, in the early 70s, the first SSRs we got, they only had a very limited capability for processing information. And as a lot of your listeners will know, there are 4,096 possible codes that an aircraft can squawk. Yeah. But in our early system, we could only use about seven of those, and they are what we call non-discrete codes, so they end in double zero. And non-discrete codes mean any aircraft can squawk that code at the same time. So it didn't identify an individual aircraft, but what our system did was it enabled it to put a symbol around the radar return that indicated what type of aircraft it was. Right. And we've got a little decoder here. So for example, 2400 codes in those days were heavy aircraft. Okay, yep. So probably Boeing 747s in those days. And they came up with a big rectangle shape around the, the blip. Yep. Um, which they used to call tennis courts. And we've actually got a picture up uh, behind the console here of the display, and you can see just north of Melbourne there are two tennis courts. Yes. Yep. And the two blips are overlapping. Right, so one of the problems is if they're overlapping, that means they're close together, yep. and we hope that they are at different levels, but you've got no way of telling from that information because right. we didn't get the mode C information that we use today, which tells us the aircraft's height. So right. you would have to get a report from the pilot as to how high they were to make sure that the aircraft weren't at the same place at the same level. So in those days, uh, the controller was doing a lot more talking to the aircraft rather than the aircraft automatically, electronically talking to the console. Correct. Yeah. Yep. It's absolutely true. So there were a lot more reports required from pilots, not just of levels, but also distances and things like that to identify aircraft. And also there's a lot more talking between controllers as well, because uh, when you've got an aircraft, when it gets to the end of your bit of airspace, you want to give it to the next controller. In those days, you used to have to ring them up. And there's a little joystick on the console here. You could yep. press a button that brought up a thing called an interconsole marker, which was an arrow on your display and on the other controller's display. And you'd use this joystick, you'd put it next to the blip you're handing off, wiggle it around to attract their attention, and you go, that is Alpha Bravo Charlie assigned 7000. And the controller would go, accept Alpha Bravo Charlie 7000. You hang up and then tell the pilot to change frequency. Right, right. 
Um, now, in today's systems, we don't have to do any of that. It's all done electronically. So the more modern systems have got rid of a lot of the talking that they used to do in this system, both between the ground and the pilot and also between controllers on the ground. It, it makes me wonder, the development over time of these systems, were they driven by the people who were using the systems, the, the air traffic controllers coming up with better ideas and... Or, or was it who 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 actually does the developing of and, and improving of systems like this? Well, it's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> sometimes controllers would probably say uh, they were designed by engineers who didn't know much about air traffic control. Yep. yep. Um, but there are uh, quite extensive research facilities around uh, the world, and there's one in particular in Europe uh, that Talos uh, is involved with, and they do a lot of uh, development work, and they have a lot of controllers involved in that looking at better ways to uh, manage the traffic. Okay, and you're a controller now. Um, can you see ways that it will improve in the future or do you think we've pretty much got it right now? No, no, there's always scope for improvement and in fact uh, Australia's just committed to uh, buying a new air traffic control system that will be installed over the next uh, well, five or six years, I suppose. Right. Um, and that should bring in a whole lot more uh, tools that we can use to process aircraft more efficiently so yeah I think uh, the air traffic management system is going to keep developing just as aircraft are going to keep developing um, and there's a lot more that we can do over time. Okay brilliant. So we're now in another uh, different corner of the museum and this one has purple boxes. Actually no I'm lying, they are grey boxes again. Um, these look a bit more modern to me but uh, some of this stuff goes back to sort of World War II era doesn't it Phil? That's right James it does. Um, we love grey here I might say. <laughs> <coughs> uh, the first system we've got on display here is a system called Rebecca Eureka. Now uh, people who uh, particularly people interested in military aviation might have seen Rebecca Eureka aerials on uh, aircraft. They're generally on sort of the sides of the nose. They look like little whiskers. Yep. And uh, the Rebecca Eureka is actually a system developed during the Second World War for dropping supplies to people in occupied Europe. So it would have been used by uh, 161, 138 Squadron with uh, uh, Stirlings, I think, and, um, uh, and Lockheed Hudsons. And I think also I've seen these aerials on, obviously, definitely Lancasters and I think uh, Catalinas. Uh, yes, I'm not too sure of uh, All what the aircraft they were employed on, but, and it was certainly used uh, in broader applications as well as, as that, but that was the origin of it. So we're, we're going to look at the broader applications. Yeah, well, just first on how it worked... Um, it was based on the principle of radar, so timing a signal out and back and giving you the range. Yep. And the problem that they had was uh, Europe was blacked out during the war, so they wanted to drop supplies to partisans. How do you find those groups in the middle of uh, blacked out Europe? Yep. Um, the system they came up with, uh, the Eureka system or the Eureka part of the system was a, a transponder, so a radio receiver and transmitter, and it was... Uh, small enough to fit into a sort of a small suitcase and uh, so an agent would be sent over to France with a Eureka transponder and when they were ready to receive the supplies they could go out to the uh, drop zone, set up the Eureka transponder, the supply aircraft would come along with the Rebecca part of the system, 
and that would interrogate the transponder in the suitcase, in the Eureka suitcase, and measure the distance to the, uh, the ground beacon, which was the Eureka beacon, and also using the uh, antennas on either side of the aircraft could get a bearing on the, the thing as well. So you could home onto the Eureka part of the system with the aircraft, and then obviously you would identify the drop zone with a flash torch or something like that, and they could heave out their supply containers on a parachute and know that they were going to the right uh, recipients. Am I right in thinking that the Eureka part that's sending the signal up to the aircraft has a, f a fairly small range so that the Germans weren't able to pick it up and track down where these resistance Yeah, so were. it would have been a fairly low-powered uh, transponder. I do know that the uh, system was later used in other applications where they had much stronger Eureka beacons. So, for example, um, maritime patrol aircraft returning back to land could uh, home on a Eureka and that um, might be where I'm thinking, station, so where I might be thinking of the Catalina, yeah. yeah. Um, and the Venturas had them too. And the Venturas, yeah, yep. indeed. Yeah, so <clears throat> after the war, the Department of Civil Aviation in Australia um, could see the value of radar-based systems for navigation. And one of the problems they had was uh, we've seen the beacons already, the uh, radio range and the NDB, uh, which gave you a line of position so yep. you could fly along a track. Yep. But one of the problems was how far along the track are you between stations. So in the early days, the only way you could tell where you were along the track was by flying over the, the ground beacon. And right. then you could say, oh, yes, there's a fixed position here, and then work it out from that. So um, for air traffic control purposes and also for navigation purposes, they realised that continuous position fixing was desirable. And so the department uh, worked with CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, which still exists, to develop a system which became known as DME, or Distance Measuring Equipment. And that used the same kind of principle, uh, except the transponder was in the aeroplane, not on the ground, and the interrogator was on the ground in the form of the DME beacon. Well, sorry, it worked the other way around. The aircraft interrogates the, the ground beacon. Right. Uh, with its DMA system and measures the distance to the ground station. So you could have continuous position fixing using laterally one of the NDBs or radio ranges and a long track fixing with DMA. And that made a huge improvement, uh, particularly from an air traffic control point of view in terms of being able to manage a lot more aircraft. Right, right, okay, I got you. So it was a great Australian invention. Australia had a network of DME beacons operating from the 1950s, early 1950s, um, quite a while earlier than anywhere else in the world. And did it become a world, did it become a worldwide um, uh, tool? Um, it did, but not the Australian DME system. So uh, the Americans in particular, they had uh, various groups working on developing DME systems in, in the States. Uh, the Army and Navy had a bit of a barney over what system they would adopt because, of course, they didn't talk to each other much in those days. And so that, plus some technical difficulties, uh, delayed the introduction of their system. But when it arrived in the form of TACAN, uh, Technical yeah. Air Navigation System, which has a directional beacon and a DME component, yeah. um, the US Air Force particularly spread TACAN beacons all over the world and they became the de facto... DME, international DME system. So Australia for quite a few years had uh, two networks of DMEs operating. We had some international beacons and then a much bigger network of our own 
DME system, but in 1995, our own DME system was closed down, uh, and GPS has really taken over in a lot of uh, respects, although we still use the international DME quite a bit. It's actually interesting the dominance now of GPS and uh, aerial navigation. Last weekend I was at um, uh, Black Sands, which is a fly-in for uh, recreational flyers, and so many of the guys there are the old school, and they and several of them just in conversation mentioned to me about, oh, these young guys today are using GPS, and they they just do it do it on their iPad, and that's it, and they don't know you know what might happen in between and all this sort of thing. Do do you as an air traffic controller think that GPS is the way of the future? It's it's a perfect system, or do you think that they need to be also learning the um, old schools and navigation? Well, I think the answer is both. I think people do need to learn the old schools of navigation. And uh, um, like any tool, GPS is an absolutely wonderfully useful system, but it can be misapplied and misused. And sometimes we see that uh, in the shape of uh, operational problems. Um, I think perhaps in Australia, because of our much greater distances, the GPS has really been accepted very rapidly as a as a tool for pilots, whether they're flying IFR or VFR, yeah. uh, and it's a very widespread system, and people are very comfortable with it now. But as I said, it, it can have problems if you don't think about what you're doing. Right. And of course, if it conks out and you don't have the, the old style skills, yeah, that's exactly what they're talking about. Is if, if suddenly your battery goes flat when you're halfway through. Yeah. A flight. And um, in New Zealand, maybe that's not quite such a big problem, but in Australia... Well, it can be, nowhere. because we have a lot of cloud and a lot of hills. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. 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 I suppose, really, you know, if, if it all goes horribly wrong, you can break out your sextant and get some uh, star shots, can't you, Dave? <laughs> depends, it depends how much of that cloud you're in. <laughs> yes, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, technology is replaced as, as generations go on. Every, I think it's fair to say in almost every field, a generation will say, oh, you know, this new thing is great, but it's got these weaknesses, which it will have, it always right. will. Um, complete uh, tangent, but uh, when I was working the book trade many years ago now, um, people were very upset by the idea of com- um, computer stock control, and they were making sure they kept their, their paper stock cards up to date because, you know, this, this newfangled computer would fall over. Well, now, of course, we look back and we go, well, why do we bother? Because it has completely replaced it. So it does take time, and, and as Phil said, misuse and misapplication uh, is, is... And there are always weaknesses. And also, those experience grows with using tool and the tool itself is developed and yep. becomes more reliable then yep. you can start to rely more on it when we've been using GPS for many many years but it's only now really that we're becoming to use it for primary means navigation right in uh, air traffic well you know in uh, flying I should say yeah. I guess when the, the pilots are coming through now new pilots they, they learn the system from the start um, it's just come second nature to them to, to use it. And uh, you always have that transition when there's two different systems, isn't there, where there's the, the people who want to resist. And Change, they, yeah. yeah, and they'll always want to say, oh, well, the old system was better. Yeah. Um, and, and the new guys never know the difference. So. No, that's right. And we're definitely in one of those transition phases right now. Yeah. Yeah. What's the next thing you've got to show us, Phil? Mm. All right, well, um, the next... Uh, Part of our museum that I'd like to give you a rundown on, and then once again, I'm afraid it's uh, grey cabinets, unless you really know what you're looking for. There's two different shades of grey, though. <laughs> <laughs> We're now picking up the subtleties of grey cabinets. Light and dark grey. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <coughs> what was that book called? 
Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> this is our museum. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey cabinets. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey cabinets. Um, <clears throat> these particularly grey cabinets are actually some very important pieces of equipment. Um, what we're looking at is the microwave landing system uh, transmitters. And in the uh, late 1960s, people around the world realised that the instrument landing system that's commonly used for bad weather landings, ILS, yep. uh, had a lot of um, technical problems, being at a system that was designed in the Second World War, so it was getting long in the tooth even in the 1960s, right. and uh, also has a lot of operational constraints, and people were looking for a better system that didn't have any of those operational constraints and uh, technical problems. So there was a worldwide competition run by ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, to come up with a, a new system that would operate in the microwave band, so a much higher frequency band than ILS operates in, which doesn't suffer from all the interference problems that ILS has. Yeah. Um, there are teams working on this uh, around the world, um, Britain, America, Germany, and Australia also decided to have a go at it. And to cut a long story short, there was a very uh, serious and pretty cutthroat international competition to get everyone's system adopted as the world standard. And it was, in fact, the Australian system in the end that, that uh, succeeded. It was the, judged the best system. Uh, unfortunately, by the time the competition was resolved and ICAO had adopted MLS as a standard, people could see GPS on the horizon. Right. And people said, don't worry about refitting all the aircraft with MLS. GPS will be here in a few years and we won't need it. Right. And unfortunately, 40 years later, we're only just now <laughs> getting to the point of replacing ILSs with uh, GPS landing wow. systems. So it really was a system very technologically uh, sophisticated. A huge achievement by Australia to uh, win that competition. And it was a system that should have had more operational success than it did, but unfortunately... It hasn't, although, having said that, Heathrow installed four MLSs just a few years ago um, because of the problems that they were having in bad weather with their ILS systems. So okay. it, it has uh, carried on in certain specialised applications, but uh, never really spread worldwide as it right. probably should have. Right. Well, I think that's a, that's a background thing to what we're talking about, is it's very hard to predict the future or in any field, but uh, here is very hard to see how long something will last, how viable it will be. And there's a lot of, even though we're operating, uh, again, unusually in a global-type environment, generally most, uh, most civil aviation is, is expected to work on the common ground, although I know there's a lot of variation in standards and expectations that people complain about, but it's meant to work, in, you know, to some degree harmoniously. And I think... One of the other things that's pointed out to us a moment ago was something where we um, speaks Russian and American. Is, is that correct, uh, Morris? I've just switched on a, uh, a, a switch to a rather complicated tower device with a number of screens. It's uh, actually going beep. We wanted things that went beep, and we have something that now goes beep. <laughs> this is actually a GPS receiver, but it's not like your Garmin or your TomTom. -Tom. It's somewhat more sophisticated than that, and it was developed in Australia. It's the ground-based regional augmentation system, otherwise known as GRASS. And at the moment, the uh, computer, onboard computer, is scanning the sky from an antenna we have on our roof. And uh, in a minute or two, we'll probably find it's logged 12 of the satellites that it's capable of logging. Right. And on the screen, it's scanning laterally and vertically 
and coming up with um, an average error of around a metre or sometimes less. So what it's doing is giving a very precise location. We know exactly where we are, we know our altitude, uh, we know the time precisely. Now, why? Well, aircrafts tend to have GPSs also, and their GPS thinks it knows where it is with probably 98% surety. Yep. We know where we are with 99 or 100% surety. The two talk to each other and come up with a very precise signal which locates the aircraft. And um, to cut a long story short, as is often said, it potentially enables the aircraft to land in the dark with the pilot's arms folded on exactly the same part of the runway every time. Okay. And uh, the future is uh, linked in with something like this. Yeah, fantastic. So this particular system, GRASS, was developed in Australia by Air Services Australia, which is the uh, company that I work for, and uh, is the air navigation service provider in Australia. And uh, <coughs> the idea of GRASS was to provide semi-precision approach capability over a, a regional area so that all airports within, a say, a basin could use this system to have... Uh, you know, the equivalent of a Cat 1 ILS approach or thereabouts. Right. Um, so it's not as super accurate. I'm going to stop you there, Phil, and say you have to explain what a Cat 1 ILS approach oh, is. Oh, Cat 1 ILS, okay. <laughs> so I talked about uh, ILS before, instrument landing system, which enables an aircraft to uh, basically do a landing in bad weather. There are different categories of ILS. Uh, the higher the category, the lower the approach minima. So the lowest category is Cat 1, which gives you about 200 feet decision height, which means if you're not visual by 200 feet, you have to go around. Um, and the highest category is Cat 3C, which allows you to do a fully blind landing, so you could land with zero visibility and zero decision height. Um, so that's what Morris was talking about, about landing with your arms crossed. Yep. Um, I think perhaps to put in there, um, the guys doing those kind of landings, the first uh, um, sort of practical practice of that was really I think World War II with the, uh, the, the BAT beam approach training in the UK on uh, airspeed Oxfords and so on and uh, that was pretty pretty scary kind of stuff. It, it, we're making a big fuss at the moment about self-driving cars and this would have been to pilots back then when that idea or, or that level of automation was, you know, they were flying, they weren't uh, relying on the, they were flying the aircraft following these instructions back then. And another one is uh, Jimmy Doolittle, of course, in the 19, um, 1930s, who, um, with Sperry gyroscopes, um, was able to actually fly an aircraft, I think, pretty much for the entire flight under the hood with, uh, with a, um, a Czech pilot as well. Great trust in the technology there, Phil. Yes, indeed. Um, the first sort of properly operationally viable blind landing system, I guess, was developed in the UK. That would be the, the, the blind landing experimental unit. Yeah. And uh, I think they were using uh, varsities or something like that in, for most of their work. Um, but CAT 3C capabilities still not that common. Um, a lot of the major international airlines uh, have it, but most other airlines don't because it requires not only uh, equipment certified to the appropriate uh, degree of accuracy, but also a lot of crew training and so on as well. And it's just not worth it for most airlines. Back to Morris. Uh, one of the other displays on this uh, GPS is not GPS at all. Alongside the antenna we have on our roof is another 
flying saucer-shaped device. It's a Russian GLONASS antenna. And we also have a GLONASS receiver built into this tower, but unfortunately we can only see three of their satellites in our hemisphere, so the accuracy is something in the order of uh, 20 metres, which is not sufficient for the uh, landings we require. So, right. GLONASS, uh, <laughs> for people who have never heard of that term before, is the Russian equivalent of uh, GPS. Okay and uh, not many GLONASS receivers in captivity in this part of the world so it's quite rare actually this piece of equipment we've got here. Did they develop that independently? Yes they did. Yeah. It would have been in the Cold War wouldn't it and, and um, now of course it's, it's nice to know the Russians are watching but they're not watching us that closely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, uh, but the uh, development of this system was a huge achievement. Once again it was adopted by ICAO as a world standard even though uh, Australia has chosen not to pursue it. It is available for anyone around the world to adopt and to use in this uh, format and it was a big project to, to get that approved by ICAO, so a great technological achievement that once again unfortunately hasn't gone anywhere as a commercial system. You've talked about quite a number of different systems here that have been developed in Australia that are um, you know, quite big leaps in, in technology and I think a key question here is how many Kiwis were involved? <laughs> you know, they must have worked. Well, you know, they, the Kiwi is a flightless bird, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know, actually, how many Kiwis no, are involved. But, no, I'll just sort of throw that in there. But it is one of the great uh, themes of our museum, in fact, is the work that Australia has done over a long period of time, yeah. in right from the 1930s up to today, in being at the forefront of the development of technology, uh, you know we don't we're not a big aeroplane building opera, uh, nation, but we are a big aeroplane operating nation, and we've led the world in many respects in terms of the infrastructure required to support uh, an air transport network. Things like uh, DME, MLS, GRASS, another system we haven't talked about, TVASI, which is a, a visual landing system all developed in Australia and all probably amongst the best of their type, certainly at the time when they were designed and introduced. That's one of the things I've actually, it's actually really opened my eyes walking through here and hearing this. I had no idea this sort of thing had gone on in Australia. You just assume that it all comes from Europe or the United States. So well, you, you, you would do, absolutely. And I think one of the things I'd be fascinated is if we have any Canadian listeners, because as uh, Phil just touched on in a way, Canada is a country very similar to Australia in terms of it being very large. It's a bigger country, in fact, with an awful lot of not very much in large areas of it, even worse weather than we have in, in uh, you know, they have whiteouts in, in, in the north quite regularly. They do have big mountains, uh, which are a significant problem. Um, and the flip side, I think, is, is I would guess, and it'd be interesting to know if anyone can comment, you know, send us an email or whatever, um, that uh, yes, we know they build aircraft uh, in significant numbers in Canada. It's a, it's a significant bush plane and regional airline uh, manufacturing country. Um, I wonder if they have that kind of um, uh, ground support technology or whether or not that's, they've gone for the aircraft manufacturing rather than the, the ground side. It's a good question, James. I don't really know much about Canada, but I imagine they probably would have followed the US in, in a lot of that. As they often do, yes, often given do, the yeah. proximity and the fact that a cross-border compatibility always makes sense. But we've seen that, I mean, you know, again, going back to, well, the, the mosquito restoration in New Zealand recently, an awful lot of the equipment that went into that aircraft was Canadian, and some of it was Canadian-American originally. So yeah. when de Havilland designed it, they never expected American hardware uh, to go in there, but uh, by being built originally in Canada, although I 
always call it the first New Zealand built mosquito because certainly credit to the people who did it. Yeah. Um, that that's you know it ended up being a multinational thing, and, and that's one of the fun things about what we're doing here is it's it's not about just Australia or just New Zealand, but actually who's who's succeeding in which areas. Yeah, and I think um, you know something that most people don't really appreciate too is how. Uh, it's significant a job ICAO has done over the years yes. in trying to standardise something that goes across the whole of the globe. Mm. Ensure there are differences and you know operational diff- you know incompatibilities and so on and so forth. But rather than looking at what doesn't work, if you look at what does work, it's absolutely incredible what they've achieved, and, yeah. and that goes from everything through security, passport. Um, you know, ICAO is responsible for all the uh, machine-readable passport uh, technology, for example, right. to standardise all of that. So it's not just about aeroplanes and nav but even things like nav you know, to have the whole world equipped with nav that are interoperable is a huge achievement and, and could have been you know, quite a shambles. So, you know, there's a lot to be really proud of in the way civil aviation has become a worldwide uh, system and that every country has played their particular part in the process. Yeah. Absolutely, Phil. I think um, and it's a really good point to make in that um, I think almost all of our listeners these days would probably have spent a bit of time on an airliner and like most of us, and I'm sure we'll put our hands up to this as well, has complained about the you know, adequate food and the seat pitch wasn't quite as much as we would like, but actually the fact that the airline system works globally to a pretty, pretty um, uh, consistent standard um, and that it is as safe as it is. So we do know about these accidents. We just talked about one of the mysteries a little earlier. But, um, you know, um, you pick your car type and it's got a lot more accidents uh, against its mark than, than any air, modern airliner um, and that we just take it for granted. It, ironically, the success of all of what we've been looking at today is the fact that we don't even think about it, we don't even see it. I think most of our listeners would never have heard of ICAO um, unless they were in the aviation in that field before today. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we're in the archive here. Tell us about the archives, Phil. Well, Dave, uh, as well as having uh, the Airways Museum collection itself, the Civil Aviation Historical Society has a very large archive. Uh, we've got some quite important document collections that go back to the beginnings of the civil aviation branch of the Department of Defence in the early 1920s. For example, we've got a photograph album of uh, aerodrome site selection tours that they did by car back in the 20s looking for sites for aerodromes back in the very, very early days. So there's some of the first uh, airport-related photographs uh, in Australia. Right. Um, We've also got things like the personal papers of Edgar Johnston, who was a very important figure in early Australian aviation. He was the first Director General of Civil Aviation, and it includes correspondence with a lot of the great pioneers like Kingsford Smith and Ulm and Norman Brearley and Horry Miller and Hudson Fish of Qantas, of course. Um, And often the correspondence that he maintained privately was quite different to the official correspondence that you find in the archives. So, yeah, a very important uh, collection of papers. And that's just a couple of examples of what we've got here. Plus you've got all the technical stuff here. We've got a huge technical library, that's right, uh, mostly to do with airways equipment, but we've got some aircraft manuals and things like that as well. Um, we've also got uh, a very large collection of photographs. We've got something like 10,000 negatives 
and lots and lots of prints and including some very historic uh, photograph albums and things like that so a huge amount of material here and in fact one of the things that we are trying to do is to make our material accessible there's no point having a great archive if no one can get to it yep. and uh, so we're putting a lot of stuff uh, as we can onto our website but also we uh, encourage researchers to use our uh, archive collection so we've had a lot of people of various kinds do work here um, authors researching books uh, we've just had a chap uh, uh, who's finished a PhD thesis on the planning history of Melbourne Airport using a lot of material out of our archive collection right and uh, we've got another chap from the University of Sydney who'll be starting work here early next year on some research as well so uh, we're not just at the amateur researcher level although amateur researchers are more than welcome but also we're trying to uh, engage with the academic uh, history community as well um, using our resources to the full. Is the content um, specifically Australian or would there be international stuff among your archive that put say for example uh, you know a lot of Australian Airlines are flying to New Zealand so there must be stuff within that that relates to New Zealand and anyone who might be in New Zealand researching a topic might be able to find something here? Yes, that's quite right. Um, the international material that we do have is mainly related to international operations to or from Australia, yep. but we do also have some other uh, material, for example, um, the collection of uh, Dr Bill Bradfield's papers. He was the chief airport designer for the Department of Civil Aviation and uh, quite an important figure in his own right, but he did a lot of consulting work internationally and so we've got his papers from all of that international consulting work which you know obviously not really related to Australia but uh, certainly people who are interested in those areas would right. find some useful material in there. Right, right, okay. Well very good and um, so they can, uh, anyone out there who wants to come and access the archive can just uh, contact you through the website? Yes that's correct, uh, get in touch with us and let us know what you want to do and come and visit us and we're, we're more than happy for researchers to, to come and work in our collection. Great. So as part of the series uh, we're doing, we're, one of the things we're going to be doing is visiting a number of museums and each museum's got a magnificent collection and as we've seen today there's uh, often well, too much stuff to, to cover on any realistic timescale but what we've decided to do, it's uh, not necessarily the first time, is uh, ask someone, ask one of the museum guys, what is it, there's one thing that they'd like to uh, bring to our attention. It might not be the most important or historically significant, but may have personal interest or a, a particular story that was so easy to miss. So we're going to ask Phil today, what's the one thing from the collection you'd like to bring to our attention? I think one of the uh, most historically important items in our collection, although it doesn't really relate to the airways as such, except that it was kind of the genesis for the whole airway system in a way, is uh, the relics we have on display here from the Southern Cloud. Now the Southern Cloud was uh, an Avro 10, the same as a Fokker trimotor. Uh, it was owned by Australian National Airways, the first Australian National Airways, which was set up by Kingsford Smith and Ulm right. after their flight across the Pacific. And in 1931, the Southern Cloud disappeared on a flight from Sydney to Melbourne in atrocious weather. And this was the days before radio communication with aircraft in flight. It was the days before there were any radio navigation aids. It was the days before there were any 
proper blind flying instruments. And so it's probably not surprising that the pilot, uh, um, Shortridge, lost his way in the uh, bad weather and ended up disappearing up in the mountains. And there was a huge search at the time involving many aircraft and people on foot and so on. But the wreckage was never located until 27 years after the accident when a worker on the Snowy Mountains scheme stumbled across it in the bush and uh, fairly quickly realised what he'd found. And what we have on display here, we've got uh, the maker's plate from the aircraft and uh, also one of, from one of the engines. We've got an instrument dial and also a camera lens from a one of those little box brownie type cameras, uh, presumably carried by one of the passengers on board. And as I said, fairly small items, perhaps not important in themselves, except that it was that accident and a number of others uh, after that that really led to the requirement for aircraft to carry a radio and therefore to the modern airway system in Australia. All right. Thank you very much, Phil. That's an excellent example. Thank you, Phil. Well, thank you very much for this tour through the museum. There's a lot more to see here than what we've talked about, obviously, and, and probably a lot of uh, areas. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned you know the fire uh, rescue side of things that you do here as well. But you know we we've just been blown away by the uh, the not only the the equipment you've got here, but also the way that you guys can tell the story of it and make it really interesting. A whole lot of grey boxes that tell a really interesting story. Absolutely, Fass. I'd agree with that as, as co-host. I'd like to say thanks very much to our, our, our guides today. But also, um, there's the, um, the Airways Museum has an excellent website um, and is open on a regular basis. So I'm going to hand over to Phil to, to give us a bit of information about how you too can relate to the Airways Museum. Well, thanks, James, for those nice words, and Dave as well. Um, it is a challenge trying to uh, translate grey boxes, grey cabinets into something that's interesting, but we think it is a very interesting uh, subject and most people who do come here and listen to our stories go away saying, wow, I didn't know about any of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's really uh, what we're aiming at, to try and tell that story to people. Um, as James said, we've got a very big website. It's not just about the Airways Museum equipment, but it covers a wide range of stuff to do with Australian civil aviation, much wider than what we've got on display here. Yeah. Uh, and that comes from the, the extensive archives that we've got as well in the Civil Aviation Historical Society. Our website is www.airwaysmuseum.com. Uh, there's about a thousand pages of material there, so there's, there's plenty to keep people going. Wow. We also have a Facebook page, uh, which is the Civil Aviation Historical Society and Airways Museum. And uh, we put sort of more newsy stuff on there. Um, as well as that, the museum itself is open on Tuesdays, uh, except for um, Christmas Day, I think, and New Year's Day, but uh, most other Tuesdays were open. Um, 9.30 till uh, 3 o'clock is our normal opening time. Uh, we do open other times by appointment, so if you can't make it on a Tuesday, if you let us know, we can usually get someone here to open up and show you around particularly if you want to come with a group. Uh, we do a lot of group tours. And also we have a number of other activities during the year. We have a couple of uh, film nights every year. Um, last few years we've had a slide night as well where people bring along their, their favourite uh, slides and we all show each other our pictures of aeroplanes. Um, 
We have uh, also a big open day once a year in November. Our open day was just last weekend, in fact, and we have an exhibition that we uh, turn over every year and open it on the open day. day. We had guest speakers and films and so on. In fact, James kindly did a talk at our open day uh, last weekend. Our theme this year is on the 1934 McRobertson Air Race. We've got some display materials and um, some items of memorabilia on display here. So people can come along and have a look at that as well. So quite a wide range of activities. Wonderful, wonderful. I'd highly recommend this to any, particularly younger pilots who are training now in the modern systems. They could come here and see where those modern systems came from and get, get to understand the world of civil aviation. Um, a bit more with that, that depth of knowledge and you know, anyone who's interested in flying and, and, and airliners they'd love this museum, there's so much here to see. Thank you very much gentlemen, it's been a terrific morning, really enjoyed that Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks Dave That was the Wings Over New Zealand show <laughs> Thank you.